Okay. You guys all got your weapons, right? Acts chapter 5. It's been a it's been a big long narrative, but we're going to finish it today. Uh, last week, uh, we saw uh, the apostles um, basically making things crazy in Jerusalem. Like, these guys are kind of like out of control right now. Um, like, the Holy Spirit's moving. God is on their side doing some stuff through them. And they're out in public openly, loudly, clearly proclaiming the gospel to anybody and everybody that will hear it. And they're also performing miracles. We're seeing demons being cast out of people. We're seeing uh, people that have been lame um, and sick all their lives being healed. And it's starting to cause a problem for the political powers, the religious political powers. And so they have these guys thrown in jail, right? And then, of course, like we saw last week, uh, this interesting thing occurred where the angel comes, lets these guys out, says, go back to that same place in the city, preach the exact same message that you've been preaching, and they do. And then the guys come and find them the next day and haul them back in before them. So they're sitting before the council right here a second time. And... Uh, we see, uh, if we were to pick up just reading in verse 27, and when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Might be a little high. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are the witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33 and and, and 33 to the end of the chapter is what we're going to deal with today. Their response. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these guys. That was my paraphrase. For before these days... Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these guys and leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left 
presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Pretty good stuff. In John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. This is a little weird for us Americans to, to hear and really feel the gravity of. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. John 15. These guys had been told for a few years by their master, their teacher, what it was that they were getting into. And now they find themselves right in the middle of that reality of all that Jesus had talked about. And it's interesting to see the response. Um, verse 33 says that when the council heard this, meaning basically the gospel proclaimed to them by Peter and the apostles, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. And this is why Christians don't like evangelism. Because people will try to kill you sometimes. Evangelism is actually dangerous. Evangelism is risky business. That's why you and I like to leave it to the evangelists. Right? Those are the dudes that are just crazy stupid enough to run toward danger instead of away from it. And we're like, let's let them have that. Let's let them shoulder that. They're good at it. They like it. No, seriously, why do most of us not preach or share the gospel to others? I believe the reason is because the results are often unfavorable. You know, we want, I don't know about you, I want to be the Peter that preached to a crowd on Pentecost and saw 3,000 souls saved. I don't want to be the Peter that preached to this council this day and got an immediate death sentence. If I, if I can ensure that the one will be the result, I'm your man, God. I'll be out there every day sharing your name. But the problem is that more often than not, what they're experiencing here is the end result of preaching the gospel to people. Narrow is the road, the path, the gate that leads to life. Wide is the one to destruction. There are more people that will hate this message that we carry, this name that we proclaim, then we'll love it and receive it and find life in it. And that makes it hard. I mean, I, there's never a day when I wake up and go, I love rejection. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm gonna, I, I, I look forward to being rejected today. I'm going to go out and give it a shot. You know? We must understand that the gospel is twofold. Okay? It saves people and it condemns people. And both are purposed. In other words, the gospel has two edges, right? And both are the purpose and the plan of God through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but what? 
A sword. What does he mean? What what does peace do? It unites. It brings together. What does a sword do? It divides. It separates. So the gentle lamb, the Jesus that everybody loves, came with a sword. He did not come to erase lines of division. He came to draw a bigger one. And that lamb is going to do the same thing when he comes back as a lion. Revelation 1.16 we read, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And again, Revelation 19.15, when Jesus returns to the earth to judge and to restore all things, we, we read, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Notice that in each of these descriptions, not only does Jesus carry a sword, but where is He carrying it from? His mouth. And what is it that our mouths bring forth? Words. In His case, truth. Jesus is dividing up, separating out people by the word of truth. He's going to one day judge people by the word of truth. At the end of the day, we're talking about the Gospel. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? In other words, the Word of God, the two-edged sword, cuts deep and painfully, condemning those who are not being saved. And when it does, it makes them want to pull out their sword And kill the messenger. This is what they did to our Lord. And this is what they're trying to do to the apostles now for what they've proclaimed. This was not an evangelistic failure, guys. This passage we're looking at. It is a success. Even though they're almost being killed for it. It's a success. The goal in evangelism is not to get people to like Christians. And I think we all need to learn that. Our purpose on earth as Christ-like people, saved by the gospel of grace, God's anointed, is not to get people to like us. It's to get people to die to themselves, that they may have life. In order to do that, we must be able to say to them, just like Peter in verse 30, you killed him. Your sin killed him. And not a lot of people find that very loving, including this Jewish council. And it earned the apostles what looked like an immediate death sentence. And yet, God had other plans. Look at 33 through 39. Again, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. 34, but a Pharisee, 
in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. First of all, who is this guy? Gamaliel. And by the way, like you could probably pronounce, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Like you could probably pronounce this name. Like there's a few other options. And so like, this is stupid, but the reason I came to the conclusion I did is because all week as I'm studying this text and I'm reading this name, all I'm hearing is Gamaliel, 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 let me go. Okay? Like I'm all, I'm, I'm singing Bohemian Rhapsody, like in my mind, which doesn't even say Gamaliel. It's saying Galileo, but like I couldn't, like that's all I'm thinking. It's weird how our brain does that stupid stuff, right? And, and, he do, and they don't even say in the song, let me go. They say Magnifico. So, yeah, you, good. One laugh out of that. So, no, that's, that's how stupid and crazy my brain works. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm going with Gamaliel. I put a lot of time into, into figuring out who this guy was. I did a lot of research. You ready? He was a teacher of the law. Held in honor by all the people. <laughs> a well-respected Pharisee. I didn't even know that those existed. Well-respected Pharisees. Uh, that's right in the text. Um, I did find one really, really, really super cool thing about this dude. If you go to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, which you don't need to go there. Just mark it down. You will find that this is the guy that is responsible for educating Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul. Pretty interesting stuff. Now, I believe that what Gamaliel does here has um, several layers, okay? Uh, his response and what he says. One, I believe being political. I, be- I believe that there, there's an element here of political strategy going on. Right. And, um, you know, when when you're when you're uh, uh, a religious political power. Right. Uh, It's all it's all about maintaining power and control. And if you're going to maintain that, well, you have to be careful uh, about the way that you do things. Right. And so I, I think this guy's being extremely careful, you know. With that in mind, what, what, what's this going to look like, what we're about to do with these guys? Because remember, they're enraged. They just, the whole room just erupted. Like, that's it. You guys are dead. You know, like, there was no, there's, there's no reason for us to think that they weren't going to bring down death on these guys immediately, you know. And this guy's just wanting to slow things down a bit. He puts them outside the room. Put these guys out for a minute. I, want, I don't want them to hear what I'm about to say. 
right? They have a private briefing, him with his counsel, and he says, what's this going to look like that we're about to do, this thing we're about to do? And then he refers, of course, to a couple examples, other examples, to make his point of how a public challenge can sometimes take care of itself, right? So he brings up Theodos and Judas, uh, the Galilean. Um, in other words, this isn't Gamaliel's first rodeo with public opposition. Like there's, there's a little bit of wisdom here. You know, there's probably some mileage here. Um, this isn't his first rodeo with something like this. But also what we see is a little bit of godly wisdom, too, with this guy. We see godly wisdom that it seems like he's concerned at the possibility of maybe being on the wrong side of God on this deal. I mean, he sounds kind of like a God-fearer, and um, that's wise. That's the beginning of it. If this is of God, he says, we might find ourselves opposing him, and that would be stupid. That's basically what he is saying to these guys. But if they're just clouds with no rain, right? Like these other knuckleheads, Theotis and Judas, then it takes care of itself and everything goes away and we have nothing to clean up. No harm. These Jew, these Jesus followers just will blow on by possibly without any effect, without any consequence and everything will be fine. But they didn't, did they? They didn't just blow on by. I mean, look around, look around you right now. This is a crowded room of Gentiles 2,000 years removed from when this went down. As far geographically across the globe from where this took place. Jesus lovers. And we're not the only ones. There's a church right down the road that's just like us. There's 25 or so in Lapine. There's 60 or so in Bend. There's probably six or seven in Sisters. There's probably 30 or more in Redmond. That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. We are um, everywhere. We're everywhere. See, the religious leaders thought that if they blew Jesus up, if they killed him, that nothing would remain, that it would all just go away, that it would all just blow over. But what they found instead is that Jesus was only the pin on the grenade. And when they pulled that pin, that grenade went off. An explosion occurred outward to the ends of the earth. See, when they killed Jesus, they played into God's hand. Do you know what this means? It means that you and I in this place at this time are the shrapnel from that grenade blast. Still moving through the air. Still penetrating people and lives as it goes by. 
You and I in this place at this time are the next wave of force from that blast. And I don't want you to let that slip away too fast. I want you to, I want you to think about this for a second. Because this is why we, as Jesus' followers, exist on earth. Is to bring him to the next person, and the next person, and the next person. It's a succession that we've been brought into and adopted into. There's something else I want us to draw our attention to here with this Gamaliel. It's really interesting. And this is that we have every reason to think that if Gamaliel wasn't there that day, the apostles would have died that day. Do you notice that? I mean, it's not there, but it's just uh, there. We have every reason to think that if he was sick or if his horse broke down (laughs) or if he decided to take a vacation day, that these guys would have been killed. In other words, when God intervenes in our lives, it's oftentimes not in a big bright, loud, and miraculous way. It's in fact typically in a very ordinary way. A very natural way. A way which may even go unnoticed, but no less is of God. Remember earlier in the chapter, uh, Pastor Brent preached on this last week, these dudes get thrown in jail, and God sends like His locksmith angel like his lock picker angel, whatever. Um, that was dumb. Brings, sends an angel, says, let him out. You know what I mean? Like, let him out. Miraculously, lets these guys out in the middle of the night, unnoticed, says, go back to that place where you got arrested, where you got busted, and keep going. Right? Like it was miraculous. Like an angel let these guys out. Right? This prison break was a very miraculous deliverance, but this is a deliverance too. This one here with Gamaliel. It just looks a little bit different, you know? You see, God doesn't just send angels to miraculously let us out of tight spots. He also sends Gamaliels to let us out of tight spots. God's provisions are often so natural, so organic, if I may, so ordinary that we miss them. And what happened here is Gamaliel was there. Gamaliel spoke. And the council took his advice. And they changed course. Here's a good practice for us as Christians. To learn to see God in the little things in our life. Because God is always doing something. He is always Active, He is always moving and purposing and ordaining. Always. And we're so busy going on with our stuff that it's easy for us to go, where are you, God? I haven't seen you around lately. It would be good for us to learn to see God in the small things. In other words, live the Christian life with your eyes open. 
And what we'll find is God is active and fully in control. He's in control of the, the celestial and the natural, right? He's in control of, of the God-fear and the God-hater. They are all tools at his disposal. He uses them all however he wishes to. The apostles did not die that day because God was for the going forth of the gospel through his apostles. And if God was for them, I didn't didn't hear anything. I heard a bunch of mumbles, but okay, okay. And if God and if God is for us, then that's just it. And he is for us when we're about his business and God is about the gospel. Look, if we're about what God is about, God will be about what we're about. And there's nobody or nothing in this earth and this world that can stop it and come against it. Nothing. And so the trick for us as a church is to constantly park ourselves at the foot of the cross and be completely immersed and taken with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the sum total of why we exist and why we move and why we have our being right now and every day is so that we can go out and take that gospel which we so amazingly enjoy to those who don't yet know it. That's why this church exists. If, we, if, this, if this place ever becomes about anything other than gospel first, God help us. This is why we're here. We're not here to be cool. We're not here to be loud. We're not here to be exciting. We're not here to be cutting edge. We're not here to see how big we can get. We're here to see God glorified completely and fully through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to admit to you that it's not always easy, and we don't all know how to do that well. But we're here to help each other, to encourage each other, to spur each other on, to say, I know this hurts, but go get it. Go do it. Get after it. We're here to push each other on in the mission we've been given. Otherwise, we're on vacation as Christians. Again, we are not all evangelists, but we all are called as gospel lovers to share that gospel. How are we doing with that? Verse 40 says, when they had called... The apostles in, they beat them. So that's, that's better. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they lived to see another day. Which again, we're, we're looking at our history here, guys. You and I are here because things like this went down the way they did. Like, like these texts matter to us. They're personal. This is like family history. You know, um, one of the things that this verse tells us is that bullying isn't new, right? It's not some new thing that people are just catching on to, like this is a very old thing. Sure, maybe we found new and creative ways to do it, but it's, it's very old. I mean, when all else fails, just be a bully. Um, it's one of the most effective ways to make somebody submit, isn't it? through intimidation. That's why people do it. Uh, but it didn't work. Um, not this day. Not with these guys. And it says in verse 41 uh, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name. <coughs> Excuse me, I like that, for the name. Picture this. These guys would have probably left bloodied and bruised and sore and weak and dehydrated and hungry and swollen with pain. But their focus wasn't on all of that. And the question arises for me, you know, when I look at something like this, what is it that allows violent, malevolent harm to be inflicted upon somebody? And yet somehow the result is joy. It doesn't make sense. Well, the text tells us it's the knowledge and the belief that Jesus endured the ultimate beating for us. I mean, in a certain amount of words, that is what these guys are saying. They were celebrating, they were high-fiving down the road, crippled, because they were worthy to be counted, to suffer the dishonor, and, and, and basically to be numbered in that with the, their Lord, the one that they love. And, I, and I, this week I've been trying to kind of put flesh on that for myself, you know. Um, and um, I, I, think, I think what it means is that Jesus is their ultimate hero. Um, when, I was, when I was four, my grandmother bought me a drum set. Um, my parents didn't like it. Uh, and... Um, because I, I guess when I, I guess when I was a baby, I would just sit around like this. You know what I mean? I know that looks scary, but I would, I was always like flailing and moving my hands, right? And um, and so then when I was able to pull myself up and start walking and pulling myself over to things, everything I would go to, I would beat, like beat and break. And my mom would like get angry. I still owe her one of those little um, Mexican guys with the sombrero that sits in a, <laughs> that sits in a um, like your garden, you know. Um, but anyway, um, my aunt called me Bam Bam, you know, because I used to beat on everything that I would come across. And so my grandma's like, well, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get this kid a drum set. So at four years old, I had this big old drum set set up in the middle of my bedroom, you know. And um, shortly after that, my mom uh, put a record player in my bedroom. And there was one album on that record player that uh, she had, that it, you know, she had put on there. And I think that album was the only album I ever spun on that record player for like four years. And it was a Beatles album. And um, I would put, every day I would sit at that drum kit, I would, I would flick that record player on, I would crank it as high as I could, and I would like do everything I heard. I would copy everything I heard. And Ringo, like, became, Ringo Starr became like my hero, my idol. Like I was enamored with this dude, you know what I mean? So not only was, like, he teaching me how to play drums, but, like, I wanted to be him, you know? And so, like, I used to take the album covers and, like, study the pictures of him, like how he combed his hair. I combed my hair that way as a kid growing up, you know? Um, how he set his drum set up. Okay, now i got to take that drum off there. The cymbal goes there. Like, everything, the height, the way he like, everything. I was, it, it, was cra- it was sick. It was crazy, Right? <laughs> It was so crazy that, that even once, um, like I noticed in their pictures that they had the cool like bob hair, you know, but they had sideburns and I didn't because I was a kid and I was incapable of growing up. I took one of my mom's black markers once. <laughs> yeah, it's embarrassing. Um, but I did and I drew some sideburns and it was like, and it made me happy. The re- and, and all I wanted 
was to be just like him. Because he was my he was my idol. He was my hero. I wanted to identify with him. I wanted to be him. And I feel like that's what these guys are doing. They're saying, no one is more important to me than you, Lord. There's no one I want to emulate above you, Lord. There's a joy in the midst of the injury because they get a chance for a moment to look like their hero. Acts 5.41 may not be a groundbreaking verse for us here living where we're living and living the way that we live, but how about for these Christians in North Korea right now? This is the part where I'm going to make you feel really guilty. You're welcome. Or Somalia, you know. Um, I don't know if you guys keep up or hear about what's going on around the world. Last year and this year so far, 2019, are the worst on record since we've been recording them and keeping records of such things of Christian persecution in this world. And then look at us. Syria, Sudan, China, getting worse and worse. What do you think a verse like this means to those people? Because it's a little bit removed for us, honestly. I'll bet those Christians know the value of this passage. I'll bet this verse is a refrigerator verse to those people, if they have refrigerators. I'll bet this is one that they memorize and they recite over and over and over again to themselves, to their wives and to their kids as they watch every day when they get up what's going on outside their doors. It amazes me that these guys go away from this place fully injured but fully rejoicing. But what amazes me even more is what they do next. Verse 42. And every day, every day, in the temple, public, public, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The key phrase, they did not cease. They did not stop. They did not quit. They didn't recant. They didn't cower. They didn't submit to the threat. They didn't say, this must not be the will of God to go on doing this. Because look at us. Our eyes are swollen shut and black. My nose is broken. My ribs are cracked. My cuts are stinging. You know what I mean? This is clearly not the will of God. I want you to know before I say what I'm about to say that I have said it to myself first. All week. Over and over and over again. Be careful how you discern what the will of God is and isn't in your life and in someone else's life. Because what I found with both myself and those around me in the church is that we have a very American way of discerning what the will of God is. I'm not anti-American. I love my country and I thank God that I live here. 
If we're honest, the way that we generally determine the will of God in our daily lives typically sounds something like this. If it's difficult, it must not be God's will. If there's opposition, it must not be God's will. If people don't like us, it must not be God's will. If it hurts, it must not be God's will. If it's threatening, it must not be the will of God. If it involves any type of loss or suffering, it must not be God's will. And I wonder sometimes if we're reading the same Bible as the rest of the world is. But I know exactly why I read it the way I do. I live in a very prosperous nation, praise God, among a very free people with a very privileged worldview. And I do thank God for that. But at the same time, the more that I read my Bible, the more that I look at texts like this, I sometimes wish that it was a blessing I never knew. Because what these guys have is more. I want what they have. And I know we say it. Yeah, day's coming. And yeah, a day's going to come. I don't know. Is it going to be in 10 years? Is it, is it going to be in 100? I don't know. We're closer than we were yesterday. We can all agree on that. I think we can see the trajectory of the way things are going. But there's that weird part of me that thinks, man, what have I done for the sake of the gospel in my life? And I'm not saying that we should apologize or feel bad for the, the nation that we live in, but I will ask you this. What excuse does the American church have in not laying everything on the line for the sake of the gospel? What excuse do you and I on a daily basis really have? What hurdles are keeping us from sharing Christ with people around us? And I'm just asking you, if you're a sleeper, to wake up. Because the time is short and the field is full. Pick up your gospel sword. I don't usually do this. I don't give out homework. I don't tell you to do anything like that. But I feel compelled to ask you to do something a little different this week. Some of you are going, oh, here it is. You know, uh, I'm asking you to determine to put yourself out there this week regardless of the cost, regardless of what the response might be, and share the gospel with somebody, one person. One person. Family member, friend, complete stranger. One person this week. And sharing the gospel evangelism doesn't mean that you mention the word God somewhere in your conversation. And it also doesn't mean that you have to be a theologian or a scholar I mean, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread's at. You know what I'm saying? I think we all know how to do that. Jesus is the bread. We're the beggar, and so are they. 
If you're here today and you're hungry, Jesus is the bread. If you're here today and you wonder why you exist and why things in this world are going on the way that they're going on, it's because we're in a battle. And that battle's over your soul and mine. But Jesus has conquered. The grenade went off. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus lives. And he paid that huge, enormous, deep, extensive debt that you owe to God and has given you, credited your account with all the righteousness that you need that you may know God. It's just that simple. Jesus is where the bread's at. And you and I are hungry. So I would ask you to come. And I would ask you to live. And I would ask you to to know and experience what abundant life really is through Christ. All this, this message that I share with you just now came at a high price. Not just through Christ, but as we even saw in our text today, through generations and generations. Look, guys, the history of the church is a bloody one. It is just a blood trail that runs behind the history of the church. And that's for you and I. And we're called to pick up our crosses and jump on that trail. Not because God's going to like you more or love you more or approve of you more if you go out and you do it for him. We go out and we do it for him because he's everything to us. Because he took the ultimate beating. And I love that he took the ultimate beating for me. I want to be like these guys because he took the ultimate beating for me. This is why we exist. We have it so good in this country. Thank God every day for how you get to live. But don't, give, don't forget to give him your, your first. Right? He's worthy of it. Lord, thank you for Jesus and thank you for uh, Gamaliel. <laughs> thank you for um, uh, him being in that council that day to speak up and say what he said. Thank you for putting him there and allowing your apostles to walk out that door and continue in your strength to do what they had just been beaten for. I thank you that I'm a recipient, God, of their injury. Thank you above all else for your son, who is my hero, God, but I, I want him to be even more so. There's so much that contends in my life for his position and his spot, and I hate it. I want it, like these guys here, to just be him. So forgive me of my idolatry and my wandering heart and make yourself um, bigger to me every day. Thank you that the forgiveness of sins are real and that eternal life with you is real as a result of your gospel. Help us to go and to share it and to even have um, favorable stories next week when we come back together. We ask it in your name. Amen.